Trials of the Wife of a Literary Man by Leonora Blanche Lang. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Novels without number have been written setting forth the sufferings of the literary man who has awakened from a moment of folly to find himself mated with a spiritual clown, or with what is even more paralyzing, one of the Doras of this world. Harrowing pictures have been drawn of some gifted Hopkins, driven by lack of sympathy in his own home, to seek that precious balm elsewhere. He only craves to pour out his soul, at every possible opportunity, on the subject which is possessing it for the time being, and while he excites himself to frenzy as to the truth of the claims of some false Dimitri, or the ultimate fate of Don Sebastian, he is met by a wife's wandering eye and vague smile, followed, after a polite pause, by an instance of Tommy's drollness or Mary's precocious wit. It is not every woman who is clever enough to catch up her husband's voluble arguments and reproduce them as if they were her own, to his wonder and admiration, nor indeed is it every man who would be content with having the mirror thus held up to his own nature. Yet after all, this is perhaps quite the best that he has any right to expect. Marriage, most of us have found that out, is an affair of compromises. Few people are attracted to each other by their intellectual qualities, and if they are, they are generally of the first order of prigs. A man falls in love with a girl because she is pretty, or lively, or sympathetic. It is surely unjust to demand that she should be intellectual as well. As to the girls, they fall in love with a man because he has fallen in love with them, or because there is nobody else. Either way, neither has the right to blame the other. But it must not be supposed that every literary man's wife is capable of feeling the trials of her position. To some, the position itself is only a matter of pride. This kind of wife is a very serious person, who invests everything that touches her with a halo of solemnity delightful to the one who looks on. As a rule, her life has been passed among scenes quite different from those into which her marriage has plunged her, and she begins her new career densely ignorant of subjects and details which have been the literature of the nursery to most other people. But in a surprisingly short time she has got by heart the Masonic signs and passwords of her new state of existence, and if she sometimes misquotes or misapplies them, she never finds it out. This is not the sort of woman who will lie awake at night, reddening with shame and mortification, while she watches the bevues of which she has been guilty, standing in a row opposite her bed, making their bow. The man who marries a lady cast in this mould is usually as deficient in humour as herself, and is prepared to take her at her own valuation, thus making her worse. He is, in every sense, la mari de sa femme, and most certainly each is the elective affinity of the other. It is rare, indeed, that the husband turns out a Mr. Bennet, and unkind things were said by Darcy, and have been repeated by other people, about Mr. Bennet's habit of extracting entertainment from his incomparable lady. Yet what could the poor man do? There was only one alternative possible, and that led to the gallows. 
the foregoing remarks have been made to show that all the trials and grievances are not on one side as some eloquent orators would have us believe and that no prejudice exists in the mind of the writer against the male sex the rights and wrongs of man are not however the subject of this paper which is as they say in churches for women only now of course the typical instance of a literary man's wife who has attained the very height or depth of suffering is mrs carlyle but let us leave her on one side partly because nobody with any sense or consideration for his fellows would revive that war-cry but partly also because it is difficult to give our entire sympathy to mrs carlyle's grievances besides quite a new crop of sufferings have sprung up since mrs carlyle discoursed so eloquently upon hers in modern days budding authors and authoresses especially the authoresses are a fruitful source of danger to the literary man's wife if the husband happens to be the editor of a magazine he will be inundated with manuscript poems or novels accompanied very frequently by appeals ad misericordiam amidst the bundle of hopeless mediocrities he may come upon something better than the rest and then full of benevolent ideas he comes to his wife and tells her that a miss so-and-so has really written a rather clever story and as she says she is coming up to town on business should they ask her to come and spend a day or two with them the wife has very likely seen this experiment tried before at the houses of other literary friends and if she is a person who can learn by experience it is not every woman who can and no men she has inwardly digested the lesson so she points out firmly that if the future sappho or embryo george eliot turn out to be shy or impish or gushing it is she and not he who will have to bear the burden afternoon tea she will consent to but nothing more until she is sure of her ground the husband whose zeal in the matter has been quite disinterested gives way as he cannot help doing and probably lives to thank her for her foresight the trials to which the wife of a literary man is subjected naturally differ according to his temperament and mode of life but there is one which from mrs carlyle downwards all the wives have in common though in a greater or less degree the wife must be prepared to be ignored consciously or unconsciously by people who are either unaware that she exists at all or are profoundly indifferent to the fact how far this position will be felt by the lady who is passed over depends to a certain extent on the amount of social ambition she may possess but more on her common sense which will tell her whether the slight is deliberate or unintentional as to the husband if he thinks the proposed dinner or visit will bore him he assumes airs of virtue and declines but if it happens to be a question of his favourite sport or latest craze golf or roman camps or norman architecture then it is to be feared ah greatly feared that he will make one of that country-house party on the other hand sportsmanlike fairness must admit that the case is sometimes reversed the lady is literary and the author of a murmuring heart the husband is undistinguished he cannot be left out and has been found weeping in the harness-room while his wife shone in the gilded saloon 
These tears, as Mr. Frederick Bayham said, were manly, sir, manly. If the literary man is an eager, enthusiastic being, ready to unbosom himself to any audiences, however unpromising, how much worse is it when the wife has some special knowledge or intelligence that may make her opinion really of some use? I should like to read you this, he will say, coming in with a sheaf of loose papers in his hand, all mixed and all requiring correction, as your judgment is a criterion of that of the average public. And after this hardly flattering commendation, he proceeds to read out an article on some obscure subject to which the wife has never given a thought, stopping all the while to correct a phrase or insert a missing word with his hovering pen, and expecting the unfortunate woman to be ready with an intelligent criticism at the end of it. Is any creature in the world more wearisome than the man or woman who is a person of one idea, or habitually talks shop? Yet is anybody a worse sinner in this respect than the literary man? Morning, noon, and night does he expatiate interminably upon the subject to which he is at that moment giving his attention, say, Frederick the Great. However congenial or familiar the theme may be to the wife, it is impossible for someone to follow without special study the details of hitherto unsuspected conspiracies, or exult in a proper spirit over important discoveries. Yet for months altogether, in fact, till one burning question is replaced by another, she must be content to have the topic recur at every meal." Perhaps she would like to speak of the matters which interest her. French memoirs, astronomy, the Borgias, let us say. But she is never given a chance, for men have a wonderful power of assuming that what interests them is bound to interest other people. What was the cause of the Thirty Years' War, and who were the principal generals? A literary man once asked his wife, as they were having an early breakfast, before starting for their summer quarters, and having produced the required information, it was months ere the luckless woman was allowed to converse about anything else. The years were dated by her in an entirely original manner. Oh, that was the summer we talked of Confucius. That was the George Washington summer, and so on. On one point only she was firm. Her walks should not be invaded by this phylloxera. If she was to keep hold of her sanity at all, she must possess her own soul for some part of the day. The demon might breakfast with her, dine with her, mingle with her dreams, but take a constitutional with her he should not. Perhaps at the outset, when young and full of vigor, the wife may have had visions of correcting her husband's shortcomings, making him share the practical difficulties of their daily life, as wives always contrive to do in a sentimental novel. But as the years roll on and her power of fight becomes weakened, she gives up the struggle, finding it far less trouble to do things herself. Often a morbidly anxious person, she even ceases to discompose herself when her husband dashes into the room and announces that he has burnt a letter containing some editor's check. "'Oh, no, you haven't,' she replies calmly. "'It is sure to turn up all right.' And, of course, it does. 
neither does she pay the slightest attention to his asseverations when he mislays a book that he had it on such a table and by no possibility can it be found on any other a prolonged search which occurs several times every day will invariably end in the production of the missing volume in the precise spot which he had never been near and if she is wise she soon learns to begin her search from that very place like the laird with the salmon show me a hopeless cast he said after an empty day and there she had him as to arranging journeys or recollecting her husband's independent engagements the wife speedily discovers that if either were to be carried through she must take the burden on her own shoulders and instead of the husband being grateful for being saved from pitfalls of all kinds he probably lets off impatient jibes at his wife's memory of course i could have done it perfectly well myself if you had only told me what to do or what to say he exclaims and very likely he could still it grows tiresome to remark eight or nine times over have you written that letter have you answered that invitation and it is infinitely easier to do it herself this division of labor works very well as long as the wife enjoys good health but there are moments when it has its inconveniences occasionally she may be obliged to take to her bed and when she is up again the doctor declares that she will not get strong till she has had a thorough change her husband is anxious about her and is desirous to take her anywhere that will cure her most quickly but a wife endowed with any sense will resolutely stay at home and get better when and how she can oh yes she says to the doctor i've no doubt a change would do me good and if i only had the maiden aunt of fiction who would carry me off to her lovely country house where i could lie wrapped in shawls under the trees and drink bowls of soup every hour i would go to-morrow but if you think it would be a rest to me to have my husband sit down to the writing-table and begin what hotel shall i write to what room shall i order what train shall we go by what time shall i order the cab you are wrong i must mend at home or not at all change may be possible for the wife of a barrister a soldier or a clergyman but not for the wife of a literary man for these and other reasons it is quite clear that foreign travel can be no enjoyment to the literary man's wife and her husband recognizing this fact will probably urge her to accept an invitation to join a friend when he is safely engaged for some weeks hunting for cranogs whatever they may be or seeking ogams in the wilds of ireland for one weak moment she thinks she may manage it and then her long and ghastly experience comes to her aid i don't know how i can remember you have promised to lecture at sheffield on the third of next month and if i am not here you will be sure to get into some mess about it what nonsense he cries indignantly you can't want to go if you make such a silly excuse just as if i couldn't manage my own lecture by myself he does his very utmost to persuade her, but she stands firm, and what happens? He departs for his remote corner of the West, with the date of the lecture repeated to him ad nauseum, both by word of mouth and in subsequent letters. 
At last, late one Saturday night, with bank holiday treading on the heels of Sunday, the hapless victim gets two letters by the same post, one from the secretary of the lecture committee saying that the date was now drawing near, and no subject had as yet been fixed on, until that was done nobody would take tickets. Might he say it would be upon uh, the women of the Fronde, a period with which he knew the lecturer to be familiar? the other letter is from the literary man himself and begins for heaven's sake wire at once and tell me the date of the lecture and the subject the wife who is not of the order of woman that keeps her husband's letters in a scented box sends hastily for the waste-paper basket and turns over the contents of two in the hope of discovering the name of a telegraph station stamped in the corner of one of the fragments there is none and her only resource is to write out two concise telegrams one to her husband with the date and the subject fixed on it by the secretary and the other to the secretary himself and dispatch them to the head office to go up by post the other offices have been closed hours ago but the wife knows quite well that her trials in the matter are not yet over the husband has carefully avoided answering any of her numerous questions as to how long he is staying in his present quarters and what he means to do next the journey is a long and broken one and letters are apt to come irregularly and besides as he has paid no attention to any of her remarks hitherto what guarantee has she got that the substance of her telegrams will reach his supraliminal self the other is no good however she does all she can looks up every conceivable train and steamer that may lie between him and his ultimate goal and calculates carefully all his dates these with a letter of minute instructions she sends off next day her efforts are so far crowned with success that he finally grasps the date of the lecture but through the succeeding days letters and telegrams contradict each other with wonderful regularity as to places and seasons but we are often told whether truly or not that the capacity of human suffering has its limits and it may be supposed that this particular woman had reached hers there is however one kind of trial to which the literary man's wife is especially subject but for which he cannot fairly be held responsible if she like him occasionally has a fancy for dabbling in literature then every word she writes as long as it is worth anything at all will be ascribed directly or indirectly to her husband it matters nothing if the subjects she chooses are those of which he is entirely ignorant it is to no avail that her name and not his appears on the title page of the book it is he and not she who will obtain all the credit and all the praise no wonder literary ladies are proverbially somewhat short in their tempers to those who reflect on the trials of lady byron harriet shelley or mrs robert burns the sufferings enumerated above may seem paltry and not worth mentioning and indeed to a person fond of managing or with an inborn love of playing providence it is possible that they might even be productive of pure enjoyment but it is not every woman who has these advantages and before she is made practical by sheer pressure of circumstances when her nature is naturally shiftless and indolent 
she will have to pass through a purifying fire of considerable intensity. From this she emerges one entire and perfect chrysolite. End of Trials of the Wife of a Literary Man Read by David Wales